Morning, TLC. Good morning. How are you this morning? Good, awake, more awake than 9 a.m. maybe. You've had more time for coffee. And, um, it's good to be with you guys. I'm Erin Clifford, if I haven't met you before. Um, I preached here a few months ago, which was my total joy. Uh, and so when Torn asked to come back, I was super excited. I'm slowly falling in love with the Third Coast, um, which I've just been instructed to say this week, Third Coast. Um, the weather this morning, I mean, I have to say, the cold is testing my love, my new love for the Third Coast, um, but it's been beautiful with the snow. I've been here for a few days because we have been running a one-year of spiritual formation program um, that both Torin and Jordan are in and myself, so we've just finished up one year kind of doing this thing together, looking at different spiritual practices, and we had our final retreat this week. Um, so I've been here for a few days, been able to experience the gorgeous snow, and I was out on um, Lake Michigan. The retreat center we're at is on Lake Michigan, so even more beautiful as the snow fell, even colder. Um, so it's great to be with you. Uh, Torin told me, hey, Aaron. I was like, hey, Torin. We're starting a series on uh, spiritual discipline, spiritual practices, and looking at the filters we use. How can we be more of the people that God wants us to be, that we want to be, and how do we address kind of the facade, the masks we sometimes put on, particularly with social media and technology, and what do spiritual practices have to say to us today? How can they return us again to... Uh, that grounded version of ourselves that we want to be, and maybe a truer version of who God wants us to be. So I'm excited this morning to talk about a spiritual practice that I've been trying to practice the last few years, and I'm not saying I'm perfect at it. I'm still learning for sure. Um, but it's the practice of presence, the practice of presence, being present in any given moment. And now I love my phone just as much as the next person. Um, and in fact, you know, when you, I don't know, when I recently updated my phone, it started doing that thing where it tells me how many minutes I've been on it the week before <laughs> or how many hours. It's kind of discouraging, actually. I'm not sure I'm into that feature. Um, but in a way, it kind of says to me how many moments I've not been present, right? How many moments have I kind of not been present to what was happening actually around me the week before or that week? And I, I thought about it because I got a, a text that said that I had been doing less hours. And I actually felt quite proud of that. <laughs> and I was like, what does that mean exactly? So sometimes social media, sometimes technology can actually take us out of the, where, of the present, of being in the present. Sort of the tension of Instagram. I love Instagram, I'm very visual. My mom's an artist, I love art, I love visual things. So when Instagram came along, I was super excited because I love pictures. And so I'm an, I'm an Insta girl as much as anyone else, but the tension of Instagram is, you know, you're supposed to take a picture of what's happening instantly, right? Like in the moment, like here's what's happening, here's what I'm doing. But even as you post it, and even as you sort of filter it and all the other things, depending on like how, you know, OCD you are about your posts, um, might take you some time you're actually taking yourself out of that moment, right? And all of us have probably had some time this week we were in a conversation with a friend and they get a text and all of a sudden their attention goes away. All of a sudden they're not present in that moment. And we may have been that person to someone else. This week I was hanging out with a friend in Dallas, a really close girlfriend of mine, and she was telling me this intense story. And I get a text on my phone, an email pops up from work. And I do the, the silly thing of actually looking at my phone while she's talking and I see this email and all of a sudden this like tidal wave of stress goes over my body. Because <laughs> it was an email reminding me that I hadn't emailed something to someone else and that they were waiting for it. And so in that moment, you know, I, my whole body changed, my whole countenance changed, I wasn't present with my friend anymore. And I kind of 
realize what was going on and what I was doing. And I looked up and I looked at her and her face just fell. You know, she was like, she knew I had disappeared on her in that moment. I was like, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. No, I'm listening, I'm listening. It's hard to be present. The world is sort of pulling us away from that. So we want to look at that this morning. And we're going to look at it through the lens of Matthew 24. Matthew chapter 24. Before we turn to Matthew 24, let me give you some background of what's happening. So in Matthew, there are what they call five discourses, five speeches that Jesus gives. And this is his last one. So this is sort of his retirement speech, the sort of last things he once said, which should make us want to pay attention anyway. What is that thing that Jesus would save to the last to speak about? So it's his last discourse. He's been talking to um, a lot of the Pharisees, to the crowds that have been following him through Matthew. But for this final speech, he draws his disciples away. He draws them to a private place. And he wants to talk to them just about what it means to follow him, to have chosen him. So it's no longer the masses of crowds, it's those who are saying, yeah, Jesus, we're going to follow you. And he starts out at the beginning of Matthew 24, and he says this really weird thing, okay? And you're like, Aaron, Jesus says a lot of weird things. Okay, well, this is one of the weird things Jesus said, and the disciples were a little thrown by it. At the beginning of the chapter, he says, you see this temple? See this big building where you go to worship God, this temple in Jerusalem, the center of culture? You see this thing? I'm going to destroy it, and then I'm going to rebuild it in three days, And they're like, whoa, what? This is so weird. What are you saying, Jesus? And so they ask him, what does that mean? And he goes on in the chapter to explain what that means. Now to them, the temple at the time, the building that they went to in Jerusalem to worship God, it was not only the place where you found God, like God's house, but it was also the place that was a huge center for their culture. What it meant to be Jewish, what it meant to be the people of God was sort of hidden in this temple. They also thought that the temple was indestructible. Might be if someone said to us today, oh, I'm just going to knock down the Statue of Liberty. We'd be like, what? That's the craziest thing. It's like this huge thing. You know, it's built really well. You can't destroy it. That's kind of what their minds were. They were like, Jesus, this doesn't make any sense. They couldn't fathom it. But Jesus was talking about two different things. He had one, one mind on sort of the middle distance of the year 70 A.D., so 70 years after he will have rose again, the temple would be destroyed. In history, we know this, it would have been destroyed by the Romans, and it would have been in many ways the end of a a Jewish era. And it was a tragic, tragic thing for the Jewish people. It was a devastating event. So he's predicting this thing which will happen, actually, in 70 AD, and will be devastating for them. They can't even really take it into their minds at that point. But he's also talking about another sort of return. He's talking about the end of the age, when he will return. So we know from 1 Thessalonians, we know from Acts, that Jesus is coming again, right? So we live in this weird kind of time. There's sort of Jesus came, and then there's now, and God's sort of present with us by his spirit, but then also Jesus is coming again. So if that's confusing, that's all right. (laughs) That's normal. That's theology, right? We live in what the theologians call the now and the not yet. Jesus is with us, but Jesus is coming again. And when Jesus comes again, it's the king returning to his people. It's a glorious, hopeful event. Jesus is coming back to redeem all things, not to destroy things, but to actually make the world anew. And if that's been something that you've wondered about and it doesn't make sense to you, I really recommend N.T. Wright's book called Surprised by Hope. It's a fantastic book about life after death and about what happens when Jesus returns to redeem the world. And it's a hopeful thing. So what does it look like to wait for that? How should they live Well, this is what Jesus says. He uses five parables to explain to his followers what difference should that make in their daily life. 
that Jesus is returning. So here we are, Matthew 24, verse 42. He says this, Therefore, keep watch, because you do not know on what day your Lord will come. But understand this, if the owner of the house had known at what time of night the thief was coming, he would have kept watch and would not have let his house be broken into. So you also must be ready, because the Son of Man will come at an hour when you do not expect him. Who then is the faithful and wise servant, whom the master has put in charge of the servants in his household to give them their food at the proper time? It'll be good for that servant whose master finds him doing so when he returns. Truly, I tell you, he'll put him in charge of all of his possessions. But suppose that servant is wicked and says to himself, well, my master is staying away a long time. And then he begins to beat his fellow servants and to eat and drink with drunkards. The master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him and an hour in which he is not aware of. He will cut him to pieces and assign him a place with the hypocrites where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. It's a good morning passage, isn't it? <laughs> so I don't have time. I think I always do really difficult passages when I come here, don't I? Um, <laughs> we're not afraid. We're digging deep, people. Um, I don't have time to go into all those last verses, but suffice it to say, those, you have to understand the context. So those were apocalyptic verses. Those were Old Testament references to what will happen at the end of the world. And the Jewish people, as they were listening, would have seen those as pictures, not necessarily literal examples of what will happen, but more ideas of what the end of time looks like. So FYI, if that's got you caught, we'll talk about that another Sunday. We'll come, I'll come back to talk about that. Um, but for now, let's focus on the first part. So Jesus is saying that, this, that what we should do while he is away is to keep watch, right? To wait, to remain watchful, to stay alert. He says that it's like a homeowner. You know, if someone told you that someone was going to break into your house, if they were like, hey, someone's coming to your house at 11 o'clock and they're going to steal your TV, you wouldn't go to sleep, right? You wouldn't like put on your noise machine and your eye mask and go to sleep. You would stay up. You would stay up and watch. You would remain watchful if you knew that that was going to happen. Well, he says, we don't know when Jesus is going to return. So keep watch. Stay awake, he says. Well, what does that mean to stay awake? I love this, uh, this t-shirt I saw once. Um, Jesus is coming back. Look busy. Have you seen this? <laughs> I love that. I almost bought one, actually. I should have worn it today. That would have been really good. Um, Jesus is coming back, look busy. Okay, so we all laugh at that. But there is a part of us that might actually believe that, right? That if, if someone said, Jesus is coming back today at five, what would you do? What would you want to be doing when Jesus returns? What would you want to be doing when Jesus comes back to redeem the world? It says here, look busy, but that's not what Jesus tells us to do, actually. That's not really what it means to be watchful, to be awake, as we wait, we're not waiting so much like astronomers with a telescope, staring at kind of a world far away, kind of like, oh, I wonder what's going to happen there on Mars later today. And we're not watching like a security guard watches a security screen, you know, slightly bored, slightly dazed, hoping something interesting will happen. We're meant to be watching more like a lover watches for their love to come through the door. More like someone who is imprisoned in a camp or something, waits for their freedom when the war is over. It's a longing because we know what is coming is good. 
We know what is coming is redemption. We know what is coming is wholeness. We watch in hope. I have a good friend in, uh, in my church back at home, and she has these two adorable daughters. And every day, I mean, every Sunday that I'm in town, they come running up to me no matter where they are in the church, middle of the service, doesn't matter, and they come give me a huge hug. And one of them, her name is Ollie, one of them, whenever I'm going to visit their house, she always waits on the front doorstep for me. <laughs> so cute, so spry. She's like this big, and uh, she's like eight years old. And she'll stand there and she'll wait. Now, sometimes I'm late confessions. Sometimes I don't have not time management, not my gift. Um, so sometimes I'm late and she will be waiting there. You know, she will wait there through winter. I promise you she's probably there today hoping I come there tomorrow. Uh, she will wait. But when I drive up, she gets so excited and she waves and it's, and it makes, I mean, it makes me feel so loved. She's waited for me. Who we're waiting for matters. What we believe about that person matters. For a lot of people, God is they have, this issue, they have this idea that God has a big checklist in heaven somewhere, and he's sort of keeping track, you know? And so when you think of Jesus returning, you're like, oh, stink. <laughs> this is going to be bad. You know, they think of it as like as God's coming to, to tell them all the things they've done wrong. This isn't what Scripture says. Scripture says that our king is coming back to reign, that Jesus will be on the throne, but the one who comes back is the one who is your father. If you've chosen to follow Jesus today, the one who comes back is coming back to make everything whole. Coming back to give life uh, in eternity. This is good news. So as we wait, that's the posture that we wait in. The Father of lights is coming from whom every good and perfect gift comes. And so this expectation that we're meant to have as we wait is really a matter of discipleship. If we're expectant, God can use us. If in the moment we're aware of what's happening and what God is doing, God can use us. But if we've numbed ourselves to the present, if we're doing everything we can to not be in the now, how is God going to speak to us? I have a life value, which I always try to practice and I'm not perfect at it, which is to be interruptible to the Holy Spirit. Because the Holy Spirit is always speaking, and the Holy Spirit's always doing something. And often it's not the thing that I'm paying attention to. <laughs> I want to be interruptible to the Holy Spirit. But to be that, I can't be living in the past all the time or living in the future all the time. That's often what keeps us from being in this present moment is we're thinking about the past. Either we're living in regret. We can't let go of mistakes that we made. We haven't been able to accept God's freedom and forgiveness and moved on. Or maybe we're living in pain of what someone else has done to us and we need to release them and give them freedom through forgiveness. Or maybe we're living in the past because, because we're in a bad space and two years ago was great and why can't we just get back to that? Or maybe we're living in the future. Maybe we're full of anxiety and fear about the what ifs, the what will happens. And we can't be present to what God's actually doing now because we're so afraid of what's coming, what might come. Or maybe what we're thinking about in the future is something good. Maybe it's a fulfillment of something. We think, oh, when I only get there, then life can start. I'm just hanging out right now waiting for that thing to happen. That's when life will be good. That's when I'll choose to be joyful. That's when I'll have something to celebrate. That's when my life will really start or I'll become significant. And so it's hard to live in the present. And there's a difference between waiting and being present. 
We all go to the doctor, right, or the dentist, and we're in the waiting room. What do you do in the waiting room? Play on your phone, exactly. Or read a magazine. I'm a big magazine person. Read a magazine. You're not really thinking about what's happening around you, right? That's the whole point. You're trying to not think about the fact that you've been waiting and that maybe your appointment's late and you're kind of getting annoyed. <laughs> so you're trying to not be in the present, significantly doing things to distract yourself from the present. But you are technically waiting. So there's a difference between waiting and actually being present as we wait. Actually thinking to ourselves, how am I feeling about going to the doctor right now? Checking in with our minds, what am I thinking about right now? What am I spending my time being mindful of right now? Who are these people around me? Man, she looks worried. Maybe I should pray for her. I wonder what's going on with that person. What's God doing in this place, in this waiting room? That secretary was really annoyed. Maybe she's having a bad day. Maybe I should have grace with her. It's diff there's a difference in waiting between being present and just waiting. Henry Nouwen says this. He's talking about patience. And he says, patience is a hard discipline. Patience asks us to live the moment to the fullest, to be completely present to the moment, taste the here and now, to be where we are. When we are impatient, we try to get away from where we are. We behave as if the real thing will happen tomorrow, later, somewhere else. He invites us to be patient, to trust. He says, the treasure we look for is hidden in the ground on which we stand. The real treasure from God is actually in the now. He's not in tomorrow. He's actually with us now. This spiritual practice is called the sacrament of the present moment. The sacrament of the present moment. All spiritual practices are like stop signs in our life. And you've been studying some of them. Confession, silence, solitude. I love this series. I love that it's introducing us to things that followers of, of God, people of faith, have used for centuries to help them live through the day-to-day -day world and to notice God in it. But they're all stop signs. They all say, hold on. Stop for a second, which is why it's so hard to do them. <laughs> and it's why they're called practices, because we're not born knowing how to do any of them. So I have taken a lot of instruments in my life, uh, a lot of lessons. I played the flute and the cello, the piano, the guitar. <laughs> I've had a lot of lessons because I'm not great at practice. I'm not very dedicated. I'm going to confess that. My whole family, they're all musicians. And when we get together and we do like jam sessions, they give me like the egg shaker, you know. <laughs> and I get to do backing vocals. That's all I'm really allowed to do quietly. Um, so practice is hard, right? But we don't get good at anything until we practice. That's why they're called practices. So if that sounds really hard to be present in the moment, it's called a practice for a reason. I remember it was a, a few years ago, I was dating a guy who was in another, in another country. So we're having this long distance relationship, which are hard enough anyway. And I was so distracted by like every text you know, waiting for his response or like thinking, okay, at four o'clock we get to talk. So I just got to get through the work day and then we're going to talk. So I was so excited, you know, to talk to him or whatever. And when you're in a long distance relationship, you read into everything, you know, so every text or every email, it was like <gasps> drama. Um, so it was hard to be present. And I realized that. I realized that something, what happened was something amazing happened to me at work. I got this promotion that I really wanted. And I couldn't even really celebrate because I was just thinking about four o'clock when I could be on the phone with him. And I realized I'd lost the present. 
I'd lost the present. I wasn't present to what God was doing in the moment. So I literally wrote on a note card, be present. (laughs) And I carried it around everywhere with me. I put it on my car, like next to my driver's, you know, next to my steering wheel. I put it on my computer at work. I needed to practice being present because I wasn't noticing what God was doing around me. I was living off in some other place. I was missing the treasure in the moment, as Henry Nouwen would say. This is called the sacrament of the present moment. So Jean-Pierre de Cassade, he is the one who first invented this idea, this phrase. He was French. He was a Jesuit priest in the 1700s. And that word sacrament is kind of a churchy word, but essentially, uh, St. Augustine said, a sacrament is an outward sign of an invisible grace. So a sacrament, communion is a sacrament, baptisms, weddings, those are all sacraments. They're things that we do that are physical. We do them on the outside as a sign of something God's doing on the inside. So we come to communion, and it seems like not a lot's happening. It's like, well, we're just dipping, you know, and eating. But by faith, we believe that we're meeting Jesus in a new way, that God is doing something inside of us. So that's a sacrament. So he's saying that the present moment is that. The present moment has something to offer us if we will be present in it with God. He said there are no moments which are not filled with God's infinite holiness. So there, should, there are none we should not honor. St. Ignatius said the fruit of conversion is finding God in all things. In other words, maturity as a person of faith means you begin to see God everywhere. You stop and notice God in all things. God speaks to every individual through what happens to them moment by moment, Jean-Pierre says. There is no moment when God is not manifest in some form, even when we're in suffering, he says. Even in obligation or duty, the things you do in the day that just seem like, hey, I'm just going to the car wash. You know, I'm just going to Starbucks. What's God doing in this moment? Even in those moments, there's no moment God is not present. No moment is trivial, he says. Each contains a divine kingdom. The present moment holds riches beyond your wildest dreams. That's amazing, right? I'm sure you didn't wake up this morning and think, as I brush my teeth, this moment holds, you know, holds riches beyond my wildest dreams. And if you had woken up like that, your roommate might have been like, okay, no more, you know, Netflix for you. Um, Our wildest dreams, each moment holds riches because it contains God. It contains the creator of the universe. Well, Kassad had a contemporary who was a little bit older than him, and his name was Brother Lawrence. And Brother Lawrence wrote this book called Practicing His Presence. Has anyone read this book, Practicing His Presence? Yeah. It's in my top 10 books if you're a person of faith you've got to read in your life, okay? And it's short. Some of you will really like that. Um, Practicing His Presence. And basically, Brother Lawrence was a monk. He was... um, uneducated, he was poor, and he washed a lot of dishes. I mean, he was doing very normal, laborious stuff. And you see this picture, you probably can't see it, but on the bottom left it says, the Lord walks among the pots and pans. (laughs) So one of the people that sort of lived his life sacrament of the present moment was Brother Lawrence. And basically what he did, and what he explains in this book, it's kind of his diary as he goes through this time. He says, two years ago, a profound dissatisfaction. Is that a definition of your life right now? It might be. He found himself profoundly dissatisfied. He says, a profound dissatisfaction led me to begin trying to line up my actions with the will of God about every 15 minutes or every half hour. 
he says. And so essentially what he does is he begins by trying to be conscious of the moment, recognize God in the moment, even if he's washing pots and pans. Ask God what is his will in that moment for him. Recognize God in that moment. So he talks about how he did this. I mean, he'd been a monk for 15 years. So this was not his first time thinking about God multiple times a day. But he started doing this for about every half hour. He would sort of mark it. And then he did it every 15 minutes. And then he did it every minute. And then he got to the point where he was doing it every second. And he says in his book that he found a peace in God that he had never felt before. Again, he's a monk. It's not like he hadn't prayed multiple times a day. But the recognition and the invitation for God to be in each moment, it transformed him. It transformed him. The sacrament of the present moment. All of these people, these wonderful people of faith, take seriously the scripture in Acts 17. For in God we live and move and have our being. There's another great writer, uh, more contemporary, still alive in our time, named John Ortberg. He's a pastor of Menlo uh, Church in California. And he wrote this book called The Life You've Always Wanted. And it's a really good 101 for spiritual practices. If you've ever thought, I want to kind of learn more about this stillness thing and this, you know, rule of life thing. And it's a great book. And he says this. He says, I tend to divide my minutes into two categories, living and waiting to live. Most of my life is spent in transit, trying to get somewhere, waiting to begin, driving someplace, standing in line, waiting for a meeting to end, trying to get a task completed, worrying about something bad that might happen, or even being angry about something that didn't happen. These are all moments when I'm not likely to be present, not to be aware of the voice and purpose of God. I am impatient. I am almost literally killing time. And that is just another way of saying I'm killing myself. As I talk about this sacrament of the present moment, it might sound a lot to you like mindfulness. So mindfulness is a trend. It's going around a lot, and it's been in lots of faiths for a long time. But there's a difference between being in the present moment with God and mindfulness. There's part of mindfulness that comes from the idea of letting go of everything from your mind, getting rid of all of the suffering or the thoughts or things that are going on in your mind. The sacrament of the present moment isn't trying to empty your mind, it's trying to recognize where God is already with you. It's actually, someone once said, the difference between worry and prayer is the audience. When we worry, we're the only one in the conversation and we're kind of talking to ourselves. When we pray, we just bring God into that same conversation and all of a sudden it's turned to prayer. The sacrament of the present moment is about having God in that moment with you. Sometimes the reason that it's hard is because we're going through a hard time. Maybe to be present in this moment right now, you're like, Aaron, I don't wanna be present. Because actually right now I'm really sad. Or actually right now reality doesn't look like what I want it to look like. If I were to be present in this moment, I might cry. Or I might feel something, might feel anger. I might feel something I don't wanna feel. As we enter into that present moment, we're not alone. We remember that the presence, Christ's presence, is with us in that moment. Jesus is in the suffering with us. He has gone before us. 
Nothing you're experiencing, he has not experienced himself. There's a book that I've been really enjoying that talks about how do you have joy in the midst of suffering? And it's called The Book of Joy. And it's a five-day conversation with the Dalai Lama and with Desmond Tutu, two men who've experienced a lot of suffering in their lives. They've been in prison, they've been beaten, they've had to leave their families, they've had their lives threatened, they even continue to be threatened. And they're both about 80 years old right now. So they're thinking back on their life and people are asking them, as two people who many in the world recognize as two of the most joyful spiritual leaders in the world, how have they had joy through suffering? And this is what Desmond Tutu said. The ability to be present in each moment is nothing more and nothing less than the ability to accept the vulnerability, discomfort, and anxiety of everyday life. He says joy, true joy, is in actually the now. Not in the used to be or might be, but in the now. If we're going to wait for conditions to be perfect, we'll be waiting until we die. If we're going to rejoice, it must be today. This is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. As we look at this passage that Jesus is talking about, he compares the wise servant and the foolish servant. That's a pretty normal thing. You might think about the book of Proverbs. The book of Proverbs is filled with statements about how to live wisely and what, how a foolish person lives. Lots of cause and effect statements. You know, if you go out and do this, this is going to happen to you and it's going to be bad. But if you go out and do this, your life will be blessed. So it kind of goes back and forth. Well, this is one of those wise and foolish statements. That's the type of dialogue that Jesus is using here. He talks about the wise servant. The wise servant, when the master goes away, follows his instructions. He take cares, takes care of the house. And what happens when the master returns and finds him doing what he asked him to do? It says he's blessed. It says he's given charge of all of his possessions. It says he's even given a raise. Whereas the foolish servant says, well, shoot, I don't know when the master is coming back. And uh, this is a big house and uh, there's a lot of good wine. So uh, I think I'm just going to have a party. And not only am I going to have a party, I'm not actually going to feed all the servants like he told me to do. Like he kind of put me in charge of helping these other people. I'm not really going to do that. I'm actually just going to do kind of what feels good to me right now. And it says that he went for and he even beat the other servants. He's comparing the wise one and the foolish one. Now Jesus doesn't give us a list of, to check off about how to watch, how to wait. But he does say this. He says the wise servant listens to to what God has instructed him and follows it. And the foolish one ignores it and lives for themselves. The slave is appointed the task of making sure the other slaves are appropriately fed. The faithful and wise servant is like the followers of Jesus who produces fruit of the kingdom. The Jewish listeners would have known that's what he was talking about, that his household chores were the fruit of the kingdom. As Jesus had put it right before this, they were to practice hospitality practice forgiveness, practice reconciliation, and to make the poor a priority, to care for those in need. God entrusts us with responsibility for the world. We're told here that the, mas the master commissions his servants with the task of giving the other servants their food at their proper time. What would that look like to live that way today? In a world that seems so unequally shared, 
with people who starve all over the world, who don't have water. And many people, many of us, after the holidays, trying to eat less. (laughs) What would it look like for us to be instructed by Jesus as we are to share with those in need, to give each their proper portion? What impact might that have on the world? We're told that the servant is put in charge of the master's possessions. They're all given to him to use, to steward, so to speak. God's God's given us this amazing world to steward well. He cares how we use it. He cares that we share it. How might we steward the world's resources? Even the financial markets. Some of you here work in finance. What does it mean, not just our personal finances, but to take care and share the world's resources? When the master returns, we'll be held accountable. What difference might it make to the world that has no sense really of accountability to anyone else but ourselves? And we all fall into that category. We all have those myopic moments when we're just thinking about us. But if you're a follower of God today, you're called to something higher, something bigger, something more meaningful, something that will bring good to the world. Am I so, hey. You bear the image of God to take, to make the world better. You're actually created, put on this planet by Jesus to make the world better today than it was yesterday. That's what the church is for. The church doesn't always get it right, but that's its mission. This is what wakefulness means, Jesus says. So the sacrament of the present moment. How can we be present to what God is doing today in us and through us. All of this is in the larger picture of the gospel. It seems like an intense message that God is giving to his people, but they've been listening to him for weeks and months and years talking about God's love for them, talking about how grace and forgiveness are available to them. And after this, he will go on and do the most loving thing that he could do. He will go to the cross. He will overcome death. He will create for them a promise that they can wait for and hope for. Jesus welcomes sinners. He has forgiveness at the ready. And I don't know about you, but I'm thankful for that every morning. His mercies are new every morning. Amen. But he also offers us a call. It's a hard and it's a high call to watchfulness and to loyalty. That servant will be blessed. I like to pray for churches before I go and speak there and ask the Lord, God, what would you have me say as part of being interruptible to the Holy Spirit? I may have all these things I feel like need to be said in my talk, but I always want to know what God wants. And when I was praying for you guys, I felt like God gave me this picture, because I'm very visual, um, of a rainbow. Now, rainbows in scripture are always about hope and promise. And I felt like God said this morning, he's inviting us into the promises that he has for us in each moment to not have to wait to live that life to the full in the future for something to click and make it all happen, but actually life to the full is promised here now. The peace of God is offered here now. Healing from God is offered here now. That's only possible through the Holy Spirit. And that's the final thing I'll say. All of this, when we're present, we're not present alone. Even though Christ has gone, he didn't leave us alone. He left us with his spirit. He left us with a spirit of peace and joy and hope. 
with the counselor who will say, oh, no, no, Aaron. No, 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 no. Going off track there. Going down the stairs. Going to fall off. No, no, no. <laughs> the Holy Spirit says, come, come back over here. Be present in this moment with what I'm doing. We have that spirit with us. May that same spirit keep us ever awake. May that same spirit keep you and I today, tomorrow, and the weeks ahead ever awake. Amen. Let me pray for us. God, we come to you this morning in all of our imperfection. We come to you today as those clay pots that are cracked, that your light is longing to shine through, even in our weakness. God, we, we confess that we are sometimes asleep to the people around us, to what you're doing in our lives. We ask for your help to wake up this morning, to wake up to what 2019 is meant to hold for us, to wake up to the glorious changes you're already doing in us, to wake up to the ways that we can make the world better even today. We thank you, Lord, that we have everything we need in your spirit. We don't have to strive. We can just surrender to all that you're doing in and through us. We thank you, God, for your love for us, your grace for us this morning, which doesn't condemn us but frees us and send us, sends us out as free and forgiven people to offer that forgiveness to others. Thank you, Lord, for your grace in every moment, in every sacred moment. In Jesus' name, amen.